welcome to Quote Me, Episode 2. I'm Callie. I'm John. Hi, everybody. Hi, I'm Anna. Hello, I'm Ian. We're going to be discussing Vine Deloria Jr. He is a Native American author and an activist for Native rights. A quick note on terminology before we begin. From an Indigenous People's History of the United States, Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, she gives the disclaimer at the beginning of her book, saying that she uses indigenous, Indian, and native interchangeably in the text. Indigenous individuals and peoples in North America on the whole do not consider, quote, Indian a slur. Of course, all native nations prefer their nation's name be used in the original language, so Diné for Navajo and so on. We will follow her lead as she is also a Native American rights activist. Thanks, Anna. And Ian, can you go ahead and tell us a little bit about Vine Deloria Jr.? Sure. Many historians and scholars consider Vine Deloria Jr. the leading American Indian intellect in the 20th century regarding American Indian policy. So Vine Deloria Jr. was born on March 26, 1933 on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation in Martin, South Dakota. His parents were Vine and Barbara Deloria, and he belonged to the Hunkpapa Lakota Sioux Tribe. Vine attended grade school at the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, and after graduating in 1951, he joined and served in the Marines from 1954 to 1956. Vine graduated with a degree in general science from Iowa State University a couple years later in 1958. From 1964 to 1967, he served as an executive director for the National Congress of American Indians. And in 1969, Custer Died for Your Sins in an Indian Manifesto was published. It would be the first of more than 20 books Devine would write during his life and is considered one of the most important works ever published on American Indian affairs. So Vine went to law school and after graduating accepted a faculty position at Western Washington University College of Ethnic Studies in 1970 by 1972, he had accepted a faculty position at UCLA. In 1974, he wrote another one of his famous works entitled God is Red, A Native View of Religion. During his time, he would write books spanning fields, including law, education, anthropology, philosophy, and religion. He also was a proud Native American and wrote about his heritage extensively, including books like Singing for the Spirit, a portrait of the Dakota Sioux. While working as a political science professor at the University of Arizona, Deloria established the first master's degree program in American Indian Studies. He worked at the University of Arizona for 12 years from 1978 to 1990. And then from 1990 to 2000, he worked as a professor at Colorado University in Boulder. He was prominent in the Colorado Law, History, Ethnic Studies, Religious Studies, and Political Science Departments. In 2000, Vine retired. On November 13, 2005, Vine Deloria Jr. passed away. So the first book we're going to talk about is Custer Died for Your Sins, an Indian Manifesto. As Ian mentioned, it was published in 1969. It is actually a collection of 11 essays talking about American Indian resistance and the exploitation of indigenous people. The title, pretty obviously, is meant to be blasphemous and very attention-grabbing. It's a play on words of the phrase, Jesus died for your sins, and refers to the failed Sioux Treaty of 1868. 
Deloria further explains, quote, under the covenants of the Old Testament, breaking a covenant called for a blood sacrifice for atonement. Custer was the blood sacrifice for the United States breaking the Sioux Treaty. So the first half of the book talks a lot about Indian termination policies, the 1940s and 50s, and assimilation. Deloria discusses the federal government's bureau Deloria discusses the federal government's Bureau of Indian Affairs and asserts that their goal was to destroy Indian culture. He liked to call out anthropologists for profiting on indigenous communities, Christian churches on their corrupt actions, but the main target was federal government and the lack of accountability. Deloria was famous for his humor and sarcasm. Not only did he laugh at his so-called enemies, but he also laughed at himself and his community. He called this Indian humor and it was often filled with self-deprecation. Um, it was a safe way for him to express his rage towards his oppressors. So unlike other scholars of his time, Deloria compared and contrasted America's government treatment of natives to African-Americans. Both suffered removal, land dispossession, and stereotypes, not to mention slavery. However, the tactics used against each group was different depending on the current needs of the US economy. In Deloria's words, African-Americans were treated like draft animals and natives were treated like wild animals. The truth of America, according to Deloria, is that it could not have developed without the systematic abuse of indigenous lives and land or the enslavement of African-Americans. So he goes on to talk about the future of American Indians. For natives, he suggests interacting with tradition and culture through relatives and urged tribal governments to curb the exploitation of Indian country through social sciences. He believed that native lawyers should develop their own common law based on shared indigenous values. He suggested that the federal government create a policy that would respect indigenous sovereignty, a sort of leave us alone agreement. Before restitution was widely recognized, Deloria was adamant about giving land back to the natives before the relationship between native nations and the federal government could begin to heal. Now that's a lot of information. Let's begin by unpacking some of the things that he mentioned, like termination and all the different policies in the early 40s. I can help with that. Thanks, Anna. I think we should start with like who is Custer, since he's in the title. Custer was a Civil War general he led the army to the west and led an attack on unarmed civilians at the South Cheyenne Reservation on November 27, 1868. He was known especially for murdering native women, children, and elders. When Black Kettle, a leader of the Southern Cheyenne Nation, tried to reason with him, Black Kettle came raising a white flag and an American flag, which Custer ignored. He fired on yet another group of unarmed civilians killing most of them, and then took body parts as trophies. He sounds like a nice guy. He did get a little bit of kermuppance. Oh, tell me about the kermuppance. Custer was killed by Sitting Bull and Crazy Horse. So one of the other things that he talks about in Custer Died for Your Sins is sovereignty. So if you don't know, sovereignty is like the supreme power of a nation. A nation being a group of people with similar ideologies. There are over 500 federally recognized sovereign nations, indigenous nations within the United States. They are supposedly given the same rights as states, but when we get into some of the acts that negate um, tribal sovereignty, 
we can see that that's kind of maybe not the case. But that is one of the things that's kind of hotly debated, where people are saying, oh, tribes or like native nations should be sovereign and they deserve sovereignty. They've been legally given sovereignty, but then it's continually taken away from them. And DeLoria was pretty opinionated on that kind of stuff. Like uh, treaty rights and the lack of attention that were focused to them was a big focus of his book, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the titles of something he wrote is called The Trail of Broken Treaties, which is obviously a play on The Trail of Tears. And later on, it seems like the focus that he tried to bring to the broken treaties is something that isn't really focused on as much today by current scholars. Uh, People uh, tend to focus more on other aspects of what he was talking about. So even though uh, sovereignty and treaties and treaty rights and the broken treaties were a big focus for Vine, that's something that current modern scholars don't actually focus on as much when digging into his work or trying to further it. I think you're right, because in in my research, I was noticing a lot of people making comments about how unrealistic his writing is, or how it's like just kind of out of this world, and it's, you know, they kind of want to put him in another category. So, and I think that's a lot of Western scholars, a lot of people who don't know the background of Standing Rock Sioux, they don't know the stories, so when they hear it, it sounds sort of ridiculous to them, because it's not their life, it's not their story. Well, and I think that's, like you said, a very Western perspective or rather like a very European perspective, because when you look at like actual Native history before Columbus, it wasn't just like a bunch of people running around, like how it's portrayed in my education growing up. Like they had legitimate government structures. Right. A lot of people make a monolith out of the different nations. And like Anna said, there's over 500 federally recognized nations, and that's just the ones that are recognized. Right. There's not one group of Indian people. Right. And that is something that we can get into because there's a lot of forced panethnicity, um, which is like the smushing together of different right. ethnic groups. And it's a tool of erasure. And it's difficult to avoid it at this point because indigenous rights... Yes, it's about each of the 500 federally recognized nations, but like indigenous rights refer to each individual nation. Correct. So it's, I don't know, it's that pan ethnicity is harmful because it's not taking in individual needs. And it's also very complicated. It's not something we can really make sense of in an hour long podcast. (laughs) (laughs) No. I was just going to add to what Anna said earlier about American Indians having government. It's actually known that our Constitution was influenced by the Iroquois Confederacy and Benjamin Franklin's time with them. That's cool. I actually didn't know that. Yes. I didn't know that either. Mm -hmm. Benjamin Franklin, the early Articles in Confederation and everything was based on the Iroquois Confederacy and how their form of government was that a lot of that self-rule and sovereignty were American ideals that were not found in Europe at the time. Hmm, Very cool. That seems like a really important thing, and it's very troubling to me that that's something that I'm just now finding out about, that it's not covered in schools. Because you hear about Voltaire and Locke and all these like European philosophers who influenced the foundations of American government, but this little tidbit about the Iroquois and their system of government serving as a, a foundation stone... That that sits wrong with me. That's yeah. 
Yeah. It feels like a very important piece of information. It does. And it feels very exploitative that like those principles, those ideals were a founding concept for our modern constitution, but we have so little representation right. for indigenous exactly. people. Well, since we're on the topic of exploitation and erasure, can you tell us a little bit about um, termination policies and assimilation? Yes. So there's a couple parts to termination policies. And like you said, that it, it was mostly in the 40s and 50s, but it starts before then. So one of the main tools of assimilation were residential schools, which recently came up in the news. One of the residential schools in Canada was recently discovered to have a mass grave yeah. of 215 children. I don't have the current count, yeah, um, yeah, but it's changing. well into the thousands for Native American children who died in residential schools. And that was one of the main tools of assimilation. The Carlisle Indian School in Carlisle, Pennsylvania was one of the most infamous residential schools in the United States. That's where the motto, kill the Indian, save the man, came from. Children were, upon arrival, their hair was cut, they were given a uniform, um, they were forbidden, forbidden from speaking their language, they were forced to speak English, they were forced into a gender binary, and forced to align themselves with European values. That was one of the ways that indigenous identities were erased, um, children were taken from their homes oftentimes against their parents' will, and forced into these residential schools. And a lot of children didn't survive the residential schools. There was rampant abuse, rampant sexual abuse. Um, and that was one of the ways that they were forced into assimilation. Another thing to talk about um, was the Indian termination policy of the 50s, which was legislation ordering the eradication of all reservations and tribal governments. At the time of some of the legislature, uh, the Sioux had a per capita income of roughly one-seventh what non-natives were making in the same region. So there's already extreme poverty in these communities. And then the Bureau of Indian Affairs was advocating for the further reduction of resources to indigenous nations. Another like reduction of resources was that instead of giving a collective plot of land was subdividing that into like plots for individual families. Right. The idea behind this being that that would all of a sudden make indigenous people which have a very collectivist culture all of a sudden make them very selfish and that's that's the words of a white person that's not my opinion. Um, the goal is to make them selfish so that they would be easier to assimilate to European American society. I do have something I would like to, to chime in with, if that's okay. Yeah. So Anna, that's really interesting. And some of my research, um, I want to jump back over to sovereignty a little bit because some of Deloria's other thoughts on tribal sovereignty seem like a counter designed specifically to tackle some of those issues you were talking about. So Vine placed the word tribal, which means the people, before the word sovereignty. In that context, sovereignty, um, he reasoned, can be said to consist more of continued cultural integrity than of political powers. He went on to emphasize, to the degree that a tribal nation loses its sense of cultural identity, to that degree it suffers a loss of sovereignty. So in other words, sever our roots and our sovereignty withers. 
Native governments like states are abstractions and it is the people acting from a foundation of cultural integrity and community discipline who generate and exercise genuine sovereignty. Tribal sovereignty is nothing less than the expressed living power of our nations. So these attempts at assimilation and trying to sort of strip away the touchstones and hallmarks of native culture were something he was very consciously trying to address here. And yes, Kelly. I think this goes back to what I mentioned, which was the leave us alone policy, which is very much like, I mean, at this point, the Euro-Americans are already here. They can't just go back to Europe. <laughs> right. But they can at least, like, let tribal nations exist. Just let them exist. Right. The concept of tribal sovereignty was embraced by Native nations, and it became a unifying principle. But by 1998, just 25 years after first promoting its use, Vine later changed his stance and said that it has been retrofitted to cover a multitude of sins and has lost its political moorings and now is adrift on the currents of individual fancy, which what he was really getting at is instead of just having this one unified concept of tribal sovereignty, it was used to cover intellectual sovereignty, uh, political sovereignty, multiple different types stretched thin to the point that it was no longer viable. That was one thing that I learned, too. He was very big on the ideological aspect and use of nonviolence. I think he states that ideological leverage is always superior to violence, and the problems of Indians have always been ideological rather than social, political, or economic. I also think that this was a wake-up call to younger generations of Indians so that they could use it as a platform to have their voices heard. Yeah. Yeah. That seems like one of the big things he was concerned with, that future generations of American Indians, regardless of tribe, were kind of falling into that trap of assimilation and kind of like losing their connection with their roots and their history. And he deliberately wanted to address that. Yes. Yeah, I think that's why he said, like, you know, keep in touch with your relatives in order to keep in touch with your tradition. Which that kind of leads into one of the other things that he mentions, which is, um, like, blood quantum. Yeah. So, and this is something that I still see, like, Native people talking about a lot today. That idea that, like, you can be more or less Native depending on how much Native ancestry you have. So, blood quantums are a tool of white supremacy tied to pan-ethnicity, which is used to erase or exploit minorities. And it can be represented one of two ways how it relates to like african-american identities is like the one drop rule where anybody if they have like quote one drop of african blood then they can be enslaved but then they do the opposite for native people so you're only native if you have a certain percentage of native ancestry in your lineage quote unquote you're native regardless of how much native ancestry you have it was a way to keep people from getting resources that were meant for American Indian people. So, you know how, like, we talked about sovereignty and reservations. So, like, you know, they got a certain amount of money. They got a certain amount of resources if they lived on the reservation, if they were Indian enough. Right. And this was a way to be like, no, you're not Indian enough to get these resources. It was, it was a way of being cheap. Right. Right. Like, being kicked off the reservation doesn't mean that 
you suddenly are accepted into Euro-American society. Correct. You're still going to be seen as, oh, you're too indigenous. You're still going to be living at that one-seventh of what non-indigenous people in the area are making. But you're not going to have the support of your community. Right. Because you've been removed from it by the American government. You're not going to have the few resources that were given to reservations. Yeah, I don't want to make this sound like they were given, oh, they were giving everything they needed to live. It's not like that. Right, not at all. After having written this book, what was the reaction? Was there, was there a movement towards more justice or did it cause an uproar? Like, what happened after people read this book? So based on the research that I came across, it does seem like this book to a point had the intended effect. Like we were talking about previously with tribal sovereignty, the concept was widely embraced and carried forward and spread out and carried to an extreme, which caused problems later on and the concept sort of being watered down across these multiple things. One of the big lasting uh, results of the book was in terms of Native Americans' relationship with anthropologists. So, a chapter in Custer Died for Your Sins, Anthropologists and Other Friends, is still regularly taught in introductory courses on Native American studies. Deloria was a huge proponent of Native intellectualism, meaning indigenous peoples can speak, think, and act for themselves. For Deloria, the purpose of intellectual labor was to do a better job of educating the public about indigenous rights and the epistemologies in an effort to promote indigenous self-determination, enforce treaty rights, and design real projects that could bolster tribal sovereignty in measurable ways. So what Deloria was really getting at is that anthropologists treated native people as objects, not as actual human beings. Uh, Contemporary Indians weren't considered by uh, anthropologists to be authentic. And anthropologists took advantage of and consumed tribal welfare without actually contributing anything to tribal well-being. Deloria's work on the book helped to transform the discipline of anthropology, and now more contemporary anthropologists display increased sensitivity to Native concerns as a result of Deloria's critique of the profession. This support led to the passage of the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act in 1990, which mandated the return of Indian remains held by scientists. So that was one good result of this. Yeah, that's really incredible. Yeah, fantastic. However, like much of the stuff we're going to talk about, there was a downside that came later uh, and that now conflicts between natives and scientists have continued to divide the anthropological community over how to continue uh, evolving their response to to natives and native concerns. Mm. I feel like that could go back to the leave us alone policy. Yeah. Yes, for sure. It seems like progress is being made, but as in all things, progress is very slow. Yeah, Yeah. that, that sounds about right. Next, we're talking about God is Red, A Native View of Religion. The original book was published in 1973, with two additional editions coming out in 1992 and 2003. Deloria explains that scholars of the 70s often thought of Native religion as a thing of the past or something that had not been touched and affected by colonizers and Christianity. Obviously not the truth of the situation. In short, this book is a comparative study of Christianity and tribal religions. And what I mean when I say Christianity, here is the appropriation of Christianity. I don't mean Christianity as a whole. I don't mean modern Christianity. 
I'm just talking about the violence that happened in the name of God. So he compares the communitarian tribal culture to the individualist Euro-American culture. So he talks a lot about what religion and spirituality is. He talks about sacred places and how the native identity is intertwined with land. In addition to his study of native religion, Deloria also deconstructs relevant Western Christian topics. He argues that Christianity, unlike American Indian religions, is disconnected from the earth and therefore kindles the environment crisis we see today. He is critical of scholars and religions that maintain a biased history that conflicts with American Indian memory and values. He feels that the concept of original sin separates the creator from his creation. The expulsion of Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden is representative of this alienation or separation. And I have a quote from Joe Wilson in the Encyclopedia of American Ethnic Literature. He says, in general, Native American and tribal religions do not place the constraints of history upon divinity, and so do not restrict God to a particular mode of operation and sequence of appearance. So very similar to Custer Died for Your Sins, there's a lot of Deloria's sarcasm and humor. He expresses his belief that westernized history and the Christian religion are inseparable. An example of this is the, quote, discovery of America, because it was believed to be a non-Christian land. Despite it being inhabited, it could only be discovered by Christian people, which is where we get ideas like manifest destiny. Deloria suggests that an updated history be taught that includes more non-Western perspectives. This would mean reconsidering history outside of a biblical context. So Deloria talks a lot about something called catastrophism, which is this idea that global catastrophes were linked with ancient myths. In this context, it would have more to do with oral histories. So what he was talking about, um, or what he meant was that oral history was more credible than modern Western science. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in the next book. So the 20th anniversary revised edition, which is the second edition, adds two chapters on the threat to the survival of American Indian tribal religious traditions. So Ian, can you tell us a little bit about why Deloria is talking about religion? Sure. So I think one of the main points was, like you said, uh, his view that a Eurocentric point of view of history and religion has helped disseminate an entire American Indian culture. So Vine's father, Vine Sr., was an Episcopalian priest, and his grandfather, Tippi Sapa, or Black Lodge, was a Yakton chief who converted to Christianity in the 1860s. After converting to Christianity, his grandfather spent the rest of his life as an Episcopal missionary on the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. His father became an Episcopal archdeacon after studying English and Christian theology, so that was the impression I got, and I think that um, contributed with his experience of Western religion through his father and grandfather and the fact that he received a Master of Theology degree allowed him to be a critical yet respected source on the topic. While his first two books addressed the issues of tribalism and tribal sovereignty and what needed to be done to save the American Indian cultures and religions. I think this book, God is Red, explains his point of view on how Christianity is flawed 
and how it has been instrumental in the appalling treatment of American Indians. He explains, for example, that Christianity has failed both in its teachings and how it applies itself to the social and cultural issues. In God is Red, he also blames the stagnation of the Indian Civil Rights Movement on the American public and their need to hold on to the perceptions of what they think an American Indian should be. So I found a quote in the book, the second edition of God is Red, and it says, quote, when the comparison is made between events of the civil rights movement and the activities of the Indian movement, one thing stands out in clear relief. Americans simply refuse to give up their long-standing conceptions of what an Indian is. It was this fact more than any other that inhibited any solution of the Indian problems and projected the impossibility of their solution any time in the future. People simply could not connect with what they believed Indians to be with what they were seeing on their television sets. I, I think that's interesting because one of the things that I learned that I was kind of surprised about is that in some of the more touristy areas of tribal lands, there are certain people who will dress up in the sort of classic... Medicine man. Yeah, that sort of look that we associate with being American Indian, and they, they basically work for tips. So they just get paid to to be what we think an Indian is. Um, you had said something, too, about like how the civil rights movement impacted Native nations also. One of the things that I read in um, Dunbar Ortiz's book, An Indigenous People's History of the United States, she mentions that the goal of like Black Americans and Native Americans was very different. For Black Americans, they wanted like equality and equity. For Natives, they just, it was back to that leave us alone policy. They wanted sovereignty and their land and their like rights, but their right to be separate from that view of settler colonization. So I think that's like a good thing to bring up. Yeah, no, and I, I agree that I guess during that time there was so much going on that I think it was a perfect time for him to come out with these books and explain what the problems were with the Western culture and how they not only affect American Indians way of life, but also their religion. And like I started out saying, they have helped disseminate and wipe out an entire culture based on what we think Indians should look like or how they should act. Yeah. It's interesting that you say that because there's a lot going on now with land back and the restoration movements. And that started a long time ago with, with things like occupations or, or you see it with, um, with the pipelines, with like Standing Rock, when they would just, you know, they would just take up space on the lands. And that was a sort of way of saying like, this is our sacred space, you can't touch it. Right. If you guys don't mind, I'd like to, to chime in at this point because oh, I would love for during, you to chime in. during the course of my research, um, because American Indian religion is, is a very private, special thing, and there's not a lot that is known, uh, some of the scholarship that I found about it was that, and Callie kind of touched on this before, but Christianity is tied more to the concept of time, while American Indian religion is tied more to the concept of space. 
right. God or a great creator entity is tied to the land itself. The land is sacred. Interacting with the land and being part of it is sacred. And that's why land rights are so important because these aren't just like spaces you can have anywhere. It's like unique, special places. Whatever is holy or sacred about it comes up through the land. And when the land is taken away or defiled with things like pipelines or modern developments, what's sacred about it retreats and recedes away and you no longer have access to it. And I do want to say now that we're kind of talking about American Indian and Native religion in this very vague way, I I want to remind everyone that, again, there are over 500 federally recognized tribes. There is no one tribal religion. It's all very different and it's all the different spaces are different for each tribe. I think um, we're in South Carolina. We're, we're probably on Cherokee land. Um, go ahead, Anna. Um, I'll also say that, like, keep in mind that a lot of Native practices or Native religious practices are closed. And so what that means is that, one, if we knew about it, then talking about it on a, in a public space specifically could lead to the appropriation of that religion. Along with it being a closed practice, a lot of that information is not available to us because we're not a part of Native nations. Um, full disclaimer, if you look at my bio, I'm white. We are all white. I'm not- <laughs> I do want to throw that out there. We are all white. <laughs> so I don't, like, I'm not a part of a Native nation. I don't have access to that information. And it's not my place to talk about specific aspects of Native religions. Um, but I do have a question for John. Yes. As he was trying to write about religion in a public space and talking about Christianity, was he successful in decolonizing religion or scholarship in his environment? Unfortunately, and, and Callie, I wish I had a better answer for you, but the answer in this case is no. At most, relevant academic disciplines only touch on Deloria's work in this area in a limited basis. It's usually done for a nominal citation to kind of bolster their argument for what they're talking about or to take one of his calls to action seriously, but not in a comprehensive way. It's usually just a piece of the whole. Uh, His work on religion uh, over the course of his career drew very little attention from theologians, and that was despite his solid background in comparative theology. I was going to say, I don't think we've mentioned his degree in theology. Which was surprising to me during the course of this, because it seems like more than a lot of subjects, this would be one that you would really want to listen to this guy on, because it's clearly a passion for him. You would think. I was reading one review, and I'm sorry, I don't remember the author of which review this was, but he was complaining that Deloria had confused two very similar types of Christianity, I don't even remember what he said. It just, I mean, it was so nitpicky. I mean, it's obvious that people just like don't want to take him seriously. Right. I think partly though, because he speaks the truth and it makes a lot of people uncomfortable with how blunt he is, but he does have the credibility. Well, I think he's the, he's the best person to be able to compare yes. his native religion to also Christianity, because they were both in his family. They're both what he grew up with, what he knows. Exactly. And just like y'all stated that having a theology, a master's in theology, definitely makes you credible. And just like he also had the uh, law degree, which helped his credibility with 
Custard died for your sins. Yeah, because he was talking about, about a lot about what he wished the legal situation for American Indians looked like and what it really looked like. I feel like this book kind of parallels that with religion. He did something similar with all of his books, where that it was a compare and contrast of two things, one native and one non-native. And then he would give a solution, what he thinks is the best option for everyone. Like, it wasn't just, this is what Western society needs to do. It was, this is what you should do. This is what we should do. And this is how we can make the world a better place. I mean, it's very, like, rainbows and unicorns, but... That's really what he, at the end of the day... Because you'd have the, all the white people would hear as a criticism, and then they would criticize the work instead of hearing out the bigger picture on what he was trying to explain. Correct. So at the end of the day, I think the purpose of this book is to give you another perspective on religion and on the world and how people think of it and how people view it. Um, and it's just to be respectful, be open-minded about the other things in the world that you don't know. And also, if you want to support American Indian and, and indigenous peoples, you can do so by buying their creative work or learning about their history, learning about listening to their voices, not by trying to practice their religion and not by trying to take away their language and their religion. Just let them speak. All right, this is our last book of the day. This is Red Earth, White Lies, Native Americans, and the Myth of Scientific Fact. So the purpose of this book was to evoke skepticism in Euro-American science, and his extreme provocation should perhaps be taken with a grain of salt. Deloria discusses American Indian culture and how it was created by their view of spirituality, government, and the ecosystem. He begins by giving a background to the American Indian situation. He explains that the general understanding of American Indians is that they have no history or sense of nation and can therefore be viewed as childlike, especially in the eyes of your American scientists. So Deloria ridicules scientific evidence of extinction, evolution, and natural phenomena by saying that American Indian traditions are more accurate. Again, we see this argument of catastrophe affecting the earth. However, Gregory Gagnon, in his article, Red Earth, White Lies, Native Americans, and the Myth of Scientific Fact, argues that Deloria also makes faulty assumptions as a parallel to what he argues Western science does. Therefore, what we can actually take away from his writing is that both Western and American Indian scholars should be skeptical of the work of the past and should work towards modernizing their approach to understanding. He challenges scientific theories of evolution, radiocarbon dating, and the Bering Strait migration in favor of Indian oral tradition, as we've kind of mentioned a little bit before in God is Red. He also challenges science by saying a lot of famous scientists of the past were known for stealing ideas, fudging their numbers, or would do anything to make sure they could keep their income. He says they spent more time proving they were right than considering different worldviews. So he also talks about the Paul Martin theory, which is this idea that American Indians destroyed local megafauna during the Pleistocene era. Deloria then suggests that instead of that happening, it was more of like the global catastrophism that I mentioned before in God is Red. So this is one of his most controversial works, I think, because of how extreme his ideas are presented. John, can you give us a good idea of how people reacted to this book? Sure, Callie. I'd be happy to. So, unfortunately, similarly to his work with uh, God is Red, 
uh, Red Earth, White Lies, uh, the book attracted a lot of defensive posturing from archaeologists. They actually united together as a whole to defend their discipline against what they saw as like a wild attack. Uh, and they completely disregarded his ultimate concerns. Major social theorists have also ignored his work, even though his critique on the universality and progressiveness of Western epistemologies predates various attempts at reflexivity, deconstruction, decolonization, and anti-essentialism. You sure did use a lot of big words there, John. Now, I know I, I mentioned a couple of different of these theories, like Paul Martin and the Bering Strait. Anna, can you tell us what those are? So I guess we should start with the Bering Strait theory, but it's the idea that the first inhabitants of the modern day Americas came by ancient coastlines during that ice age. While this at one point was a fairly accepted theory by mainstream science or by Euro-American science, um, the Bering Strait theory, also called the land bridge theory, um, has been a means of discrediting native people, their right to the land, for a long time. Um, so for background, Paul Martin is a geologist from Allentown, Pennsylvania. And he theorized that uh, native people overhunted the land, which killed off a lot of our megafauna. And if you're like me and you get confused on what megafauna is, it's like, think like woolly mammoth, like big animals. It literally is mega big fauna animal. Big animal. Big animal. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but maybe you're not, you know, maybe you're like me. <laughs> the super predators and the super creatures. Yeah, and the theory is that, like, oh, they would go after the big animals because it would feed more people. Um, and they justify that by saying that only the megafauna in the Americas of the Pleistocene era were the ones that died off, that the African and Asian megafauna of that same period didn't die off but they're entirely different continents so there could have been other natural disasters that would have impacted those groups of animals it wouldn't necessarily be an overhunting issue it just seems like a strange claim considering after the Euro Europeans came to America um, there was a the whole thing with with bison and buffalo where they purposely overhunted them to extinction. Right. Yes. Or one, yeah. One of the big criticisms I've seen about this is, for one, there are, like, tones of, like, racism in it. Like, you're 100%. charging this group of people with, with doing this. But the other thing that's often pointed out is that typically American Indians live in close harmony with their environment and nature and everything going on around them. So it really wouldn't be something they would do to go out of there to, to mess up that balance. Uh, so this, at least in the scholarship I've seen, seems to point to it being more of a, a Euro-Western um, fabrication. Eurocentric right. fabrication. I mean, also in my understanding, is a lot of American Indians were, were pilgrims, or, or they traveled. They didn't live in one place all the time. Or I, I they can't were say that. Gatherers and I can't say that for every single nation. But um, how could they overhunt something if they were moving? I'm not a scientist. That's also very. <laughs> That's a good point. Kelly. I just I just thought that you know. It's also very Eurocentric to tie into that, where 
American or Native American Indians, like John said, did not overhunt buffalo. They only killed what they needed. They used every part of the buffalo. And then the white man comes in, starts slaughtering buffalo by the thousands, like you said, to near extinction. And, they, and so it only makes sense that a white man would say, well, that's what happened to the... Yeah, that's what they did. Megal- yeah. Like, there are pictures of piles of buffalo bones and, and some guys in front of it. Uh, that's still pretty common. It reminds me, honestly, of Dances with Wolves when the scene <laughs> with all the buffalo. They come over that ridge and there's fields of buffalo that were all killed just for their skin. None of the meat was even used. I know it's just a movie, but it is very powerful to me. I mean, it's very powerful imagery. Yeah. Art making a point about real life. Mm -hmm. I did want to say that um, one thing that stood out to me probably the most was that he argues that Western science does not consider Native American Indian experiences in wisdom of the country that they have lived in for thousands, 12,000 years. The number for the land bridge theory is 14,500. These people have been here for thousands of years, yet you don't use any of their oral traditions or stories in making scientific hypotheses. Well, and part of that is because when, during assimilation times, they weren't supposed to, or they weren't allowed to speak their language, which is why a lot of native languages are now endangered or gone. Um, There are still a lot of languages that they're trying to bring back. they can't really tell all of their stories anymore. Some of them are just lost. It's hard to say, like, what what was true and what was not true. Like, what was part of their culture before assimilation, before termination policies? How much was lost that we'll never know again? Unfortunately, there is a lot of lost material in that way. And I think a big part of what Vine is trying to get at in these books that are more centered on theology is, especially with assimilation and colonization, and Western science, Western, Euro-Western central science, what gives you the right to come in and say that all of our traditions and all of our lived experience isn't valid, that this experience that you've had on the other side of the Atlantic is the only thing that can make sense and invalidate all of our lived experience and traditions? Um, it's not fair. It doesn't make sense. And again, there's a lot of like inherent like racism running through that. Right. And I think I mentioned at the beginning of my synopsis that we should take some of what he says with a grain of salt. Um, And John, you made a good point before we recorded that he was very extreme because he had a purpose behind it. He wanted people to just have a conversation, to think about what it is that they, they hold true, what they've never questioned before. That's right. And another thing that we talked about is, well, he was widely disregarded by these mainstream scholars and archaeologists who just kind of united to disregard everything he said. So by like taking this really extreme point of view and raising these ideas, you're prompting or trying to prompt some kind of discussion, which seems like the ultimate goal. He wants these ideas and parts of culture to be considered and looked at. And part, I think a small part too would be the fact that he wants these oral traditions and some of their beliefs to carry on through the younger generation. So maybe putting some of the basic stuff in a book would be some, because he knows that a lot of his readers will be American Indians as well. It could be something that they might have forgot through assimilation, their past, and what their ancestors believed, and kind of bringing it back to the culture. That's a good point, Ian. I think it's important to state 
to say that if you want to learn more and you want to you want to go deeper into this history and the oral traditions I would highly advise looking into the background of your authors. There are a lot of Eurocentric writers who will who put out stories saying that they're Native American stories, Native Indian stories, and they're kind of a colonization or an appropriation of those stories. So I would highly advise reading authors who are part of a tribe or a nation. Native Religion Facebook group <laughs> said that I can do this or yeah. whatever and not checking to make sure that you're hearing your information from a native source because mm-hmm. it's not our job to tell people how to interact with native cultures right as we all mentioned we're all white we <laughs> can't tell you what to do no. i would just say you know be respectful do your best to be respectful because sometimes you don't know what is disrespectful one of the best pieces of advice i've ever heard is that you don't get to decide when you've hurt someone so if you find yourself in a situation where you're speaking with or you're engaging with Native people, Native cultures, listen. Just just listen. Well said, Callie. Thank you. Yes, yeah, so I found this quote while researching, and I can't contribute it to any one specific person or vine, but the quote is, when asked by an anthropologist what the Indians called America before the white man came, an Indian said simply, ours. Well, that concludes our second podcast on Vine Deloria Jr. Thank you everyone for tuning in. And of course, always thank you to my co-host here. Thank you to Adam for editing and Kath for writing our transcripts. And you know what? Just everyone else. Just everyone. The library letting us do this. Again. Thank you, everyone. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> We're having a good time. <laughs> <laughs>